trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. All right, I got a little bit of good news. I got a little bit of bad news. A few thoughts on the passing scene, some of which may make sense. Some of it you may think, oh, man, this guy's as full of it as a Christmas goose. But I appreciate you tuning in nonetheless. And I want to start out our, our wrong think session today by uh, pointing out something. My friend Vince uh, had, had pointed this out to me yesterday, mainly because he was mentioned in a New York Times article that uh, apparently... You know, the memo has gone out, and the powers that be, or at least their their thought enforcers at the New York Times, the paper of record, are taking aim at Cliven Bundy, once again, and his cattle. Now, I have to offer this in interest of, of full disclosure. Um, I've been friends with Ryan Bundy for coming up on 20 years. Known him for a long time. I was there at Bundy Ranch a couple of days prior to the the big to-do that uh, made the news and sparked numerous federal trials and so forth. I also was there the day of the standoff, although I was not part of the standoff myself, and I was there to cover the court trial of Cliven, Ryan, Ammon, and uh, their friend Ryan Payne. And so... When I tell you this, I'm not saying that from the standpoint of I have all the facts here and I have all the information, but what I'm saying is there's a lot of this stuff that I did not have to get by having it first passed through some corporate media filter. I was able to go to the source directly. I was able to see with my own eyes, hear with my own ears, and in some senses, you know, weigh with my, my own hands the the appropriateness or the reality of whether something was true or not. So I'm coming to it from a position of mild authority, although I don't claim to be, you know, the ultimate authority on all things Bundy Ranch. But I was there on that April day back in 2014. And and this is the part that is going to puzzle some people and may turn them off like a cold shower. That day was one of the most spiritual turning points of my life. And I don't say that in the sense that uh, that was the day I was so scared I found God. It was very scary, and you could feel in the air a, a sense of, whoa, something very important is taking place here. There was I don't know how to put it other than there was just there was something in the whole atmosphere of that area, and it had something to do with the fact that you had armed men sitting on every hilltop, you know, wearing government uniforms, you know, men with rifles and in vehicles that were conducting what looked like a military operation, shutting down thousands upon thousands of acres of land so that they could steal the Bundy's cattle for the crime, there's air quotes around that, of refusing to pay tribute to the federal government to exercise long existing rights to water and forage and grazing that they had exercised for generations. Now, I grant you, there are people who, who will still disagree on this. But the bottom line is, none of that would have happened had the federal government not tried to convert existing enforceable grazing water and forage rights into pay-for-play privileges where basically we'll take this away from you and you can pay us for a chance to, uh, to exercise these rights. Back in 1993, Cliven said, you know what, I'm done. I'm not going to play that game anymore. I will make the improvements on those range allotments myself, which he did out of his own pocket 
hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of stock tanks and ditches and other improvements, infrastructure that benefited not just the cattle, but every living creature out there that utilized the water and the forage that resulted. So it's hard to say, well, he's freeloading off the people. And most people who say this, and by the way, the comments on the New York Times story show the astonishing depth of ignorance that, uh, that unfortunately still permeates the land when it comes to understanding what it's like out west and what it's like for these cattle ranchers. Anybody who says, well, he's stealing from the American people by grazing those cattle without paying for it, they've never been to Gold Butte. They've never been out on that part of the desert. How do I know this? Because if they were, they would probably mess their pants with how desolate and how utterly unforgiving that landscape is. This is not like, oh man, he just he took the best pastures and lush grass and all these perfectly fed springs, you know, that uh, was, were just more pristine and he's just destroying it with all of his cattle. Oh no. No, anybody who can make a living out there as a rancher is working their butt off in order to make it happen. But the point is they were. They were making it happen. And again, had been for generations. So under President Obama, presumably, you know, to uh, crack the whip and get people in line, uh, a special agent by the name of Dan Love was turned loose to go force compliance on the Bundys. And Dan, I, I presume this is because of a defect in his personal character, chose to do it against the advice of the FBI in the most heavy-handed, confrontational way. He wanted to provoke bloodshed and they set up what really resembled a military operation we're talking a 200 man task force with people being trained for combat just like they were being sent into Fallujah Iraq they traveled like a military convoy Uh, seriously lights going balls to the wall you know pedal to the middle they they would not obey traffic laws they don't have to we're so important we you know we are a law unto ourselves as they came to and from their compound where they were set up, you know, to oversee the rustling operation. Now, what they hadn't counted on was that a lot of people still have memories about things like uh, Waco and Ruby Ridge, where the U.S. government acted way beyond its proper bounds. And innocent people, sometimes dozens of innocent people, died as a result. And when it was perceived that that was what was being done to the Bundys, was setting up a situation that could go that way, hundreds There may have been more than a thousand people showed up prepared to stand with the Bundys. Now, some of them were armed. Many were not. Long story short, the feds backed down. Thanks in part to an undersheriff from Clark County, Nevada, who understood the role of the peace officer is to help keep the peace and told the stormtroopers from the federal government to put their damn guns down and, and get out of there like they were supposed to. Their operation had been called off. They were thwarted, but they wanted to fight. They, they came there for blood, and they were going to get some. Now, of course, this set in motion years of investigation and trials, and ultimately, the entire indictment against uh, the Bundys and many of the other defendants was dismissed with prejudice. Why? Because the federal government conducted itself so unethically not only in withholding evidence from them, Brady evidence that could have been exonerating for them, but also in how it went about setting up that whole operation in the first place. The memo from a, from a whistleblower within the Bureau of Land Management, Management, Larry Wooten, came out about the time that uh, the judge, Gloria Navarro, chose to dismiss the charges with prejudice. 
Another Wooten memo has come out. And by the way, Eric Parker, who uh, I think is probably the most iconic figure of that day in April of 2014, he was the guy laying on the freeway with his rifle poked through the Jersey barrier as uh, federal agents pointed guns at innocent and mostly unarmed people approaching the gates to go back and get those cattle. Eric, by the way, uh, was the one that everybody said, they'll never let him out of prison. Whoa, man, they'll bury him beneath the jail. Well, I'm pleased to tell you, I just talked to him the other day. He just got back from Washington, D.C., where he and others from the Center for Self-Governance actually hand-delivered a lot of information about the weaponization of, of the federal government, how labels are being used, how groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center are gaming the system to try to turn federal agents and other law enforcement agencies into their enforcement mechanism or their their hitmen to go out and to uh, persecute and prosecute and perhaps kill their political enemies, which is basically anybody to the right of Chairman Mao. Pretty amazing stuff. Eric is a free man, still owns his guns, still votes. He's run for office here in the state of Idaho. It's a pretty amazing thing. And I'll, I'll just say this. Eric is a good guy. I first heard the reasons why he showed up there at Bundy Ranch, and it it touched me to my soul that he was describing, I perceived that fellow Americans were under siege from a government that, that would not recognize the proper limits of its power. And he said, I felt a personal moral duty to show up and do what I could to help those people. And he showed great restraint in doing so. But I want you to understand, he did not come at it from a purely political, yeah, we'll show them guys stand up for our rights. He was doing it from a sense of Christian duty that I will not leave my neighbors standing there to be molested by people who are bent on evil. So, sorry to to go off on a bit of a tangent here, but uh, this story in the New York Times, very interesting. Oh, that scofflaw, that outlaw rancher and his cattle. How are we going to stop this? By the way, the Center for Biological Diversity has filed suit against the Bureau of Land Management, among others, trying to perhaps force some kind of a solution. Given the current political climate, given the current uh, weaponization of government against anything that is not in perfect lockstep with the uh, Biden administration, kind of makes me wonder if we aren't getting set up for another redux. And given the way that January 6th played out, where you had so many federal informants, they actually lost track of all the paid informants participating in that action. Kind of makes you wonder if uh, we don't have a giant false flag being put in place here involving the American West. Got some more thoughts on this I'm going to share on the other side of the break. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I know I'm kind of off on a rant today, but uh, really, I thought, well, I'll save this for last, and then I got started, and I just couldn't help myself. So forgive me, but uh, this has really been on my mind for a while. Um, it does sound like, uh, oh boy, the Bundys are being brought front and center, you know, for uh, for a public, uh, what, do, what do we call it again, a struggle session. They're not going to attend, by the way, but... Uh, there's also this initiative that I just was reading about yesterday. This was not related to the Bundys, but again, it, it, it involves ranching, beef, and the American West. Okay, by now, you've probably noticed there's a lot of climate hysteria. In fact, we now officially have the White House establishing a Green Guard 
This is, I guess, the environmental equivalent of Mao's Red Guard of young people who are full of, you know, excitement and vigor and ready to go out there and do anything, whatever they are told, whatever is necessary, because we're not bound by ethics. We're not bound by laws when it comes to saving the earth. It's too important for us to have to stop and think about whether this is right or that is wrong. Oh, you think I'm joking, but I'm not. And it appears that there is quite the initiative now that is being launched, again, in the name of environmentalism and climate change, to, uh, to outlaw ranching, to do away with the ranching of, of, and, and the production of beef entirely. I know all that, but you will eat the bugs and you will be happy and own nothing. Okay, this is the next logical step. It's pretty crazy stuff. But given how absolutely unhinged the left has been over things like climate change, trying to turn it into a big, you know, crisis where we can invoke extraordinary powers and suspend limits on government power in the name of saving the planet. I'd be more shocked if they don't try it than if they do. So that's just a heads up. Stock up on beef while you can. (laughs) And, And be prepared to stand up for your rights if that's what you think is important. Now, the larger lesson here, and this is what ultimately I've I've been working my way toward, is mainstream media is an effective tool in identifying those who must be purged and punished for their failure to adhere to the party line. It's something right out of Orwell's 1984. And it looks like they're ginning up another two minutes hate for the Bundys, particularly Cliven. So I want to share with you this commentary from Daisy Luther, the organic prepper. Saw this published yesterday on lewrockwell.com. The Trusted News Initiative, doesn't that sound warm and fuzzy, is a tool to brainwash the world. And here's what Daisy Luther says. She says, if you follow mainstream media, it's possible that you are the target of a brainwashing tool developed to get everyone on the same page regarding specific events. Yeah, you may have seen the video where members of the media parrot word for word a message that someone wants to get out. It's it's the one I'm sure you've seen about this is dangerous to our democracy with dozens and dozens of Sinclair-owned broadcast stations all reading from the very same script. It's it's pretty chilling too. I mean, it's it's like wow, that's that is groupthink writ large. And Daisy Luther says it's appalling, isn't it? It'd be nice to think that this is a one-off, but really it's not. It's Propaganda 101. Joseph Goebbels, the Nazi granddaddy of propaganda, was credited with the following statement. Quote, if you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. The lie can be maintained only for such time as the state can shield the people from the political, economic, and or military consequences of the lie. It thus becomes vitally important for the state to use all of its powers to repress dissent, for the truth is the mortal enemy of the lie, and thus by extension the truth is the greatest enemy of the state. End quote. I don't know for sure if he said that, but if he didn't, he was missing a great opportunity, because he certainly behaved as if that was the dynamic that drove his ministry of propaganda. And Daisy Luther asks, does that sound familiar? So here she says, what is the Trusted News Initiative? There's this troubling group of media behemoths from around the world who've joined forces to get out coordinated messages as witnessed in that video, which is included in the article from Sinclair Broadcast Media. And here's some more information straight from the horse's mouth. 
Quote, the Trusted News Initiative is a partnership founded by the BBC that includes organizations from around the globe, including AP, AFP, BBC, CBC, Radio Canada, European Broadcasting Union, Financial Times, Information Futures Lab, Google slash YouTube, the Hindu, the Nation Media Group, Meta, Microsoft, Thomson, Reuters, Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism, Twitter, the Washington Post, Compass, Indonesia, Dawn, Pakistan, Indian Express, NDTV, India, ABC Australia, SBS Australia, NHK Japan. I mean, those are the big players. And the members, the TNI members, that's the Trusted News Initiative members, work together to build audience trust and to find solutions to tackle challenges of disinformation. By including media organizations and social media platforms, it's the only platform or the only forum, rather, of its kind designed to take on disinformation in real time, end quote. Okay, so what, in fact, do these people do? Well, according to the webpage that she links to, they are too fast alert against the most harmful disinformation. I think we can safely assume they are too fast alert against the most harmful truths that are being broadcast, discuss trends, media education and shared learnings, and engineering solutions. Now, that sounds pretty innocuous, those bullet points, but it's far from innocent. And Daisy Luther says this is the height of propaganda, organized voices shouting down anyone who dissents. And if the shouting doesn't work, they'll coordinate attacks to ruin the dissenter's life. So case in point, the mainstream media regularly bands together to fight the enemy, which according to Russell Brand is the independent media. Now, Brand has recently been a target of an all-out assault by the media. It's a trial by Twitter, Internet Kangaroo Court, social media justice, when you end up in the crosshairs as he has found out. Now, she says, I can't tell you whether or not Brand did all the horrible things of which he's accused. He was formerly a drug addict. He's a huge celebrity, and a lot of people with fame and power behave badly. So perhaps he did, but every accused person deserves to be able to defend themselves. They deserve a trial before they're found guilty, and Brand isn't getting that. In fact, she says what's clear, what's very clear, is that the media is digging up every bad action the man has ever committed, every iffy joke, every uncomfortable situation that Brand has committed in his entire life, and putting it out there for the world to see. He's lost income, and they're striving to destroy his reputation as quickly as possible. And why is that? Because Brand is neither a liberal leftist nor a right-wing conservative. He's a popular voice from somewhere in the middle who has called out the media, governments, and Big Pharma on an incredibly regular basis. And people are listening. He's got, hun- he's got hundreds of thousands of dedicated listeners. His videos get millions of views, and he's still going. So she links to a video which shows why you can't actually trust members of the Trusted News Initiative. She says, the video that I've linked below is an incredibly important one. It's about the Trusted News Initiative and why we probably shouldn't actually trust anyone who is a part of it. Now, here's the really cool thing about this. I've read Daisy Luther for a long time. I think she is just down-to-earth, common sense. She's, She's a good person. But she's also not the kind of person who would say, look, I said this, so you have to believe it, and you can take my word for it. I think she would want you to Suss this out for yourself. Think about it. Study it. And really, that's the approach I take as well. Okay, we're not here to get our talking points from the approved, you know, conservative thought leaders or libertarian thought leaders or centrist thought leaders or anything like that. My job, as I see it on a day-to-day basis, is to encourage you 
to think clearly, to think independently, to question all of it, including anything that you hear me say. I'm not going to take offense. In fact, the truth be told, if you found if you find out, Brian, you're wrong about this, and you let me know and correct me on it, I will thank you for it because I don't want to be in error, and I certainly don't want to mislead people. I mean, I take my stewardship seriously. I don't want to be a source of misinformation. But more importantly, I trust you to do that thinking. The key is, though, you've got to be willing to work at it because it's not something that just naturally comes to us. Oh, yes, I can tell just by looking, you know, whether or not this is a true story or not. Typically, the stuff that really matters to us, we will study out until we get to the bottom of it and feel like we have a good understanding. And there's a lot of stuff that I think we could safely ignore. The trick is learning to differentiate between the two. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I know that uh, anytime you touch on things that are part of uh, culture wars, you're going to lose some people. Now, for instance, Caitlin Johnstone is one of my favorite commentators just because I think she is a dedicated truth teller. Even though she's coming at it from a pretty left-wing point of view, um, I think her, her attachment to truth is stronger than her attachment to her beliefs. Nonetheless, she's like, anytime you start talking about culture war stuff or these wedge issues, you're going to lose me because I don't think you're a serious person. Now, I happen to think that it's all connected. And so this I don't I'm not afraid to stray into culture war things because I think that this is one of the ways that the society is being either swayed or perhaps uh, manipulated or coerced into clinging to beliefs that we all know are false but we don't dare say that it's false. Yes, the emperor's clothes, why oh, they're magnificent, beautiful, the be- best I've ever seen. <laughs> you know, cuz you feel like there's a bayonet in your back. But I saw this article on American Thinker and I thought, okay, I got to share this if for, if for no other reason. I've, I've never heard this phrase before. Cultural humility training. It's for therapists and it's for counselors. And apparently this is something that's making the rounds. Now, it purports to improve the skills of mental health providers by attempting to entrain a humbling self-critique regarding the biases and values that may be impeding therapeutic care. By the way, this is an article by Leah E. Stevens on AmericanThinker.com. But Leah says that's a cover story for what cultural humility really is, and that is a philosophy that imputes compulsory collective racist guilt to white culture. In fact, the term cultural humility is a dog whistle for the assumption that white culture is incurably racist and white professionals carry collective racial guilt for their ongoing and incurable oppression of non-whites with no possibility of forgiveness, only permanent, humiliating white self-denigration. Leah says, the experience of guilt in human consciousness takes a lot of different forms. Most spiritual is the emotion of genuine, or the most spiritual aspect of it is the emotion of genuine individual guilt, which arises from awareness of having committed actual wrongdoing. Admission of sincere guilt is the path to unqualified repentance, with heartfelt repentance offering restoration and renewal of the guilt-ridden conscience. Okay, that rings true. True repentance does not plead for forgiveness or demand acceptance. The gift of humility is inseparable from the pride-killing nature of true remorse and repentance. Importantly, though, she says amends may be ongoing, 
though they may be ongoing. The accounting of guilt and the effort of repentance are encapsulated in time, and they do not go on forever. You understand what that means? Wrongs that were committed by people now long dead do not continue once the people who did those wrongs are are gone. Now, there may be after effects, and some people may notice, well, you bet, you know, I grew up here instead of uh, growing up in beautiful Africa. Okay, maybe that's a discussion for another time. Uh, last I saw, the you know, most of sub-Saharan Africa um, really doesn't hold much of a candle to Western civilization in terms of its civilizational advancement. Now, that's not to say that every person living within sub-Saharan Africa isn't a child of God and valuable just as a human being. I'm just saying, not every culture is equal. And that truth alone is is something that a lot of people are going to have trouble with. But, you know, if all cultures were equal and it was all the same, either we'd all be living in mud huts or, you know, there would be high-rises in the Nairobi desert. I, you know, I don't know. There are differences. And I, by the way, I'm not advocating for everybody should be exactly the same. Uniformity is not consistent with freedom. But I think we do owe each other, you know, basic human decency, something that is obviously lost when everything that you do is is based on, well, I wear my victimhood like a crown because it's who I am. Going back to the article, Leah says another form of individual guilt is when a person feels guilty for circumstances beyond his control. So, for example, a soldier feels guilty because he came home while his dearest buddy perished. Now, that's a real experience of guilt, but it arises from the mind's need to claim powers it does not have. If the guilt-ridden one can be helped to accept that he cannot control destinies, he can find more peace and humility grows. Now, the experience of guilt turns into a dark alley, or down a dark alley, rather, into induction, which is inflicting awareness of guilt as a weapon of control. So an example might be a spouse keeping alive the memory of long past betrayal, though the spouse who committed the wrongful deed is sincerely remorseful and humbled. And there's no reason to believe that the betrayal will be repeated. Here begins the difference between the liberating experience of internal humility and the mental captivity of externally inflicted humiliation. Ongoing guilt induction imprisons both the person who inflicts the guilt and the one who accepts the manipulation. So, for example, historians debate the role of biblical teachings regarding the mark of Cain and its justification of slavery in American history. However, those passages were used as apologia for slavery, there's still no doubt that a destructive aspect of religion is its power to compel belief in collective guilt solely on group identification rather than any individual wrongdoing by members. That's a fair point. Today, federal and state governments attempt to brainwash and compel anti-white prejudice and practices through fear of reprisal, exactly paralleling the religious dogma that justified slavery. In the 1700s, that dogma acted upon rigidly moralistic, materially advantaged slave owners to maintain the justification of oppression. Today, the ascription of white guilt and white cultural oppression is an artifact of anti-moral society where God-based moral precepts have been abandoned and psychological experts are de facto clergy with the power to preach human good and evil. Politicized psychology functions as priestcraft, attempting to instill guilt in people who have done no racial wrongdoing and in training assumed humility, which fortifies egoism and pride. By the way, you may have heard me talk about the uh, taxonomy of how wokeness is a religion. This is one of the examples of what that religion looks like. 
It has original sin. It has magical words that must be spoken and magical words that cannot be spoken and so forth. And it has its anointed class and those who are blameless and those who will always be blamed and tainted by the original sin. It's most definitely a religion. If you don't mind me pointing out, its missionary corps is extra zealous when it comes to spreading the word. Leah writes, in the 20th century, as actual white racist oppression dwindled to a trickle, focus shifted from uplifting historically disadvantaged people to castigating imaginary white oppressors. The Diagnostic Manual of White Guilting includes white privilege theory that all European Americans, regardless of poverty, disease, or trauma, are always privileged above non-whites. And white fragility theory that being white is is psychopathology rather that paralyzes whites from recognizing their bigotry. So white cultural humility training turns a corner into the presumption of incurability and hopelessness. Where European Americans are to be permanently humbled, it is a framework of religion without forgiveness for whites who must self-flagellate forever and parrot humility for the supposed sins of their culture. Now, the following quotes are from a popular training course endorsed and disseminated by powerful state licensing boards. And this is a course in cultural humility. You ready for this? Quote, Inequities in social relations reflect a society structured on white supremacy that serves as a foundation for the continued social and economic disparities existing between white people and people of color living in the same society. The cultural humility framework recognizes the concepts of power, privilege, and oppression, and thus calls on counselors to be agents of change and promoters of social justice. What does that mean for somebody who's a counselor? Congratulations, my friend, you just got drafted. Now, the course describes oppressors as white, male, and heterosexual, and the oppressed by race, sex, sexual orientation, transgender identification, and disability. The training is a scholarship-free zone. References tend to favor political and government websites rather than peer-reviewed articles. Culturally humble counselors are able to set aside their own beliefs and values and act as allies with with clients, rather, working toward positive personal change as well as advocating for larger societal change. So anyone who sets aside beliefs and values is psychopathic. And this course confuses biases and values by urging reflecting on one's own possible biases, religious values, and family values. Biases are mental limitations. Values are the jewel box of human consciousness. Right valuation based on unchanging truth not only safeguards against biases, but is the foundation of happiness in life. Cultural humility indoctrination prescribes permanent self-denigration for European Americans calling down the self-doubt of incurable guilt. Here's how they put it. Lifelong learning, critical self-reflection, and self-critique are imperative in facilitating the therapeutic relationship and addressing existing societal inequities. It requires counselors to reflect continually and critically on themselves and how their personal biases and deficits play into each counseling session. Sorry, but that's, I almost feel like I need to go swig some mouthwash after even speaking those words. Oh, my word. Now, there's more to this article. I'm going to come back to it on the other side of the break. But again, this is what's being taught to therapists, to counselors. This is part of their professional licensing curriculum. They are expected to step up and be inducted into the army of social justice. And I'm going to presume, I don't know, because I'm not a counselor, I'm not a therapist, but I guess if you push back on this, does this mean 
you get to find another line of work or another career? Seems like it would make sense. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing this article by Leah E. Stevens from AmericanThinker.com about how rabid wokeness wrecks therapy. Now, I don't want to, you know, look, I don't want to sound like, oh, man, you know, therapy, uh, everybody needs therapy. We're all broken. But I'll tell you, after what we've been through the last few years, especially with COVID, with the lockdowns, and um, I see a lot of people who are really struggling mentally to, uh, to maintain their mental health. So this is not something I want to make light of. I think that there is a legitimate place for therapy. So I guess it would figure that, uh, you know, as, as a, an essential institution or something that could be helpful and beneficial, that the forces of Marxist or uh, cultural Marxism would, would try to capture that and repurpose it for their own designs. Going back to Leah's article, she says, Cultural humility improves on fuddy-duddy training and cultural competence. Here's how they say it. Cultural humility de-emphasizes cultural knowledge and competency, focusing instead on lifelong nurturing of self-reflection and self-critique. Basically, it's your own struggle session, right? Self-reflection and self-critique are best incorporated into practice on a reflexive basis. Oppressor group therapists are to automatically blame themselves for racism, which amounts to self-inflicted mental illness. It's like a struggle session that you're invited to that you must always attend and you can never be excused from. Now, Leah says, in addition to permanent guilt of whites, males, and heterosexuals, the cultural humility framework envisions permanent victimhood for non-whites and LGBTers. It is important to understand the unavoidability of oppressive forces for many groups. Oppression is not something individuals can work their way out of or avoid by changing their behavior. Yes, we've labeled you and that label stays. Nice. Most odd, in as much as the purpose of therapy and counseling is to help people change their behavior. Nor is beloved marginalization neglected. Marginalization is pushing aside an exclusion of certain groups. Cultural humility focuses on the cultural context within America that marginalizes and oppresses some groups of people while privileging and empowering others. Okay, not to put too fun a point on it, but if you feel marginalized, because as a man, I don't want you dressed in lingerie teaching sexual content to a young child or to my young grandson. Is, is, that, is that me contributing to your marginalization or is that me as an adult drawing appropriate boundaries? Okay, I know how I would answer it. I also think I have a good idea how the cultural Marxist would, would answer that. Now, the training becomes hilarious as the author explains why historic Irish, Italian, and German immigrant groups assimilated better than recent Asian and Latina or Latinos. Not because the Europeans were legal immigrants grateful and responsible to become English-speaking, patriotic, successful Americans. Not at all. The training concludes their assimilation was aided by their physical appearance and language being similar to earlier settlers. Yes, we remember Tommaso Jefferson and Giacomo Monroe. Didn't they write the founding documents in Italian first, before the English translations came out? So the central dysfunctionality of cultural humility philosophy is that a therapist and a client with an a priori oppressor-oppressed psychological relationship could form a therapeutic alliance. Leah says it's absurd. 
An ethical principle in psychotherapy is that there is no pre-existing relationship between therapist and client. Any pre-existing connection or dual relationship is unethical. A permanent pre-existing cultural power imbalance in favor of the therapist based on race makes therapy out of the question. She says, cultural humility training explains how white oppressors cannot help but commit micro-assaults, micro-insults, and micro-invalidations. It suggests the use of an observer, preferably of a different race and culture, to sit in on the therapy session on the lookout for these micro-infamies. Ridiculous. Not only does it undermine confidentiality and destroy confidence the patient needs to have in his therapist, but is the client supposed to pay not only for the therapist, but also for the therapist's therapist? The article concludes by telling us the compulsory collective guilt of cultural humility training is manipulation by frauds who know nothing of psychotherapy or humility. The sincere effort to help the broken-hearted, the jittering fearful, the cage-banging addicted ones is humbling. Destructive swindlers should not be selling this perverted theory to therapists who are trying to help others. That's pretty strong wording, but I don't disagree with a bit of it. All right, I want to move on to something that's a little more hopeful, perhaps something that will be a little more settling to the soul. And it's the question of what is a home? This is an article by Walker Larson. This is from intellectualtakeout.org. He says, the ultimate adventure story is about the journey home. Consider, for example, Odysseus at sea, Aeneas in search of a haven for the Trojans, the Israelites in the desert. Such stories strike a note on the strings of our souls that vibrates through us like a call. A homeland beckons. In fact, in the archetypal hero's journey, the adventurer leaves home and enters the unknown in pursuit of some desperate quest, but he always returns having grown stronger and wiser and possessing new knowledge that is critical for the flourishing of his own familiar land. The point ultimately is to come back to make things better at home, to sink roots into the earth. The young knight conquers his foes, marries the princess, and then rules over the kingdom he can call his own. He does not wander forever. Wandering forever would be a kind of punishment. We call it exile. In Tennyson's poem, Ulysses, the poet imagines the weather-beaten old king, long after the events of the Odyssey, struck with a parching thirst for more travels. He wants to leave his home. The notion strikes us as somehow repellent, that Odysseus would endure so much in order to return home and be reunited with his family, finally at peace, only to want to leave again. To what end? It's perverted, and who would wish to die in a strange land among strange people, forgotten and alone? Yet at the same time, Tennyson's poem captures a deep longing hard to put into words. A part of us might recoil at Ulysses' determination to leave. Another part of us feels that breath of wind across our face that whispers the search. There's something out there yet, there's something more out there yet to be found. But if we or Tennyson's Ulysses burn with a yearning to find that something, perhaps it's because we have not yet fully come home. One searches in order to find something, not merely for the sake of searching. We seek a place of peace, of belonging, home. German philosopher Novalis said that all philosophy is born from a similar restlessness. Philosophy really is homesickness, an urge to be at home everywhere. Philosophy is or should be an attempt to understand the world, to understand what is. Just as a man knows his lane, the trees that line it, his front door, the smell of the kitchen, the feel of his bed, so the true philosopher seeks to know the essences of the things that surround him. What is this world? What are the things in it? Where did it come from? Walker Larson says, We're born into a world wrapped in mystery. 
and the philosopher seeks to peel away those layers between himself and reality until it is, at last, with a shock of recognition, his own. Perhaps that's what Novalis means about our desire to be at home everywhere, no longer a stranger in the universe, but a man coming through his front door to embrace what is both familiar and loved. The irony is that to really have something, we must first defamiliarize it because familiarity makes us blind, makes us forget what we have, makes us strangers to it. We walk oblivious past things we see every day, forgetting their strangeness, richness, rarity, and beauty. And if we do not see them, we do not love them. And if we do not love them, they are not fully ours. We are not fully at home. Bilbo Baggins is far more at home in Bag End after his adventure to the Lonely Mountain than before because he returns with eyes open and a mind awakened. The wife belongs to her, the husband in the most in the moments when, with a quickening of the heart, he sees her afresh. She's suddenly both familiar and new, both his own dear bride and that beauty he happens to pass on the street. The two perspectives, though paradoxical, are not contradictory. They're in harmony. And they are the solution to Ulysses' dilemma. If he could see his own dear Ithaca just for a moment, as it really is, a strange, beautiful, and mythical land, he would have no need to challenge the ocean again and tempt destruction in search of wondrous sights. Penelope is there at his side already, and she is more real and more wondrous than Calypso or any other goddess. As Chesterton writes, the whole object of real art, real romance, and above all, real religion, is to prevent people from losing the humility and gratitude which are thankful for daylight and daily bread, to prevent them from regarding daily life as dull or domestic life as narrow. What is now needed most is intensive imagination, inwards, on the things we already have and to make those things live. Now, Walker Larson says, if we live this way, we realize what we have, we love it, and we'll give our life for it. Home is that which we are willing to defend. No one dies to save a hotel, but any red-blooded man would die to save his cabin. To other men, his cabin is just some planks of wood, but to the man who calls it home, who has seen it with different eyes, who has seen it as a castle, whose spires pierce heavenward, who has seen his children born there and his father breathe his last there, it is everything worth dying for concentrated into one small space. It is the world in miniature. He says, if we could see our homes that way, we might have more peace, more responsibility, and more dedication to the care of our locality. And with a strong sense of the value of our individual home, we might begin to understand the meaning of home in a larger sense. I got to tell you, this one hit my heart in ways I did not expect, partially because I moved back to Southern Idaho after 25 years away. And what he's describing there, it's real. That's all I'm going to say for now. This is The Brian Hyde Show.